Let's pray before we begin. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, you would open our hearts to hear it afresh. We've probably heard this verse hundreds of times in our lives. But Lord, we don't want to come to it with a know-it-all attitude. We want to come to it ready to learn again, ready to understand it in a new way, see it from a different angle, and be blessed by it. So Lord, open our hearts, open our ears by your Holy Spirit today to hear that word afresh. And Lord, also, we, we pray, Lord God, that you would help this minister here not to get in the way of your word, not to preach his own opinions and ideas, but Lord, to preach your word as it is, and to glory in the gospel and glory in the things of God today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm reading from the ESV, and so I'll read this out loud now. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to take uh, some time today to focus on those four or five, depending on your Bible translation, names given to the Messiah. Because we believe this prophecy from the book of Isaiah is about none other than Jesus. So we're going to think and focus in on these four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now if you have a New King James or a King James Version, you will have five names. You'll have Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, or there or thereabouts. Is that right, Keith? Roughly? Yep. And so it doesn't really matter. Both translations work and both are important. Because what I want to start out by saying is that this word, wonderful, wonderful counselor in the Hebrew, actually that word wonderful can also be translated miraculous. It can be translated as miraculous, a wonder, a sign. And so whatever's being said about this son, this child who's going to be given, who's going to come, is that they will be miraculous. They will be wonderful. They'll be mind-bendingly, crazily miraculous. And I want to show you, I want to show you something really cool from this passage that really does prove this to be the case, that Jesus himself is a miracle, that his life, his death, his resurrection, everything this verse and all the other Old Testament prophecies say about him prove that he is just that, that he is miraculous, that he is a wonder. I want you to stick with me because these facts that I'm going to share with you just blow my mind. Because we, we sometimes forget as Christians, we get very au fait with the fact that our Bible contains prophecies in it. How many of you understand that Christianity is a supernatural faith? It's supernatural. We believe that God, through his prophets, accurately predicted things thousands of years before they came to pass. And it's in your Bible. Your Bible is a miraculous book. And this prophetic promise that we're reading here in verse 6 was actually written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And we don't really think anything of that, do we? We read that verse and we go, yeah, that verse is about Jesus, but maybe we don't connect the dots. Hang on a minute, this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. That would be, right, that would be like somebody 
way back in the 1300s, writing accurately about things that were happening right now. Isn't that crazy? And this prophetic word isn't just a standalone prophetic word. It wasn't like Isaiah and Isaiah alone began to hear things from God about the Messiah. No, there are prophetic, there are prophetic words about Jesus all through the Old Testament. You might say that long before Mary's birth pangs began, all those years ago in Bethlehem, prophetic birth pangs for Jesus began millennia before that. Because there are literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that speak with a crazy, extraordinary accuracy about the coming of Jesus. It's so accurate and so insane how accurate these words are that if we only had the Old Testament to go on, we could still know a lot about who the Messiah was going to be. Firstly, we'd know that in his death, his hands and his feet would be pierced and that lots would be cast for his clothing. We find that testimony about Jesus in John chapter 20 and in Luke chapter 23. But guess what? It's also found in the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18, it says... Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That was written a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross. Secondly, we'd know just from the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. We find this account in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Oh, sorry, I'm reading now from uh, Micah 5.2, which was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Micah, the prophet, said this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephathra, through, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who, who will be ruler in Israel. For goings forth are from old, from everlasting. We'd also know from the Old Testament that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. We know that in Luke 1. It tells us that he was born of the Virgin Mary. But wait a minute. In Isaiah 7.14, it says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And it's not just these three facts that we know from the Old Testament. In fact, there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies like this that speak about the life of Christ, the life of Jesus. In fact, one scholar, a guy called J. Barton Payne, he believed he could find 574 prophecies in the Old Testament. 574 that Jesus fulfilled. I'm not sure if that's correct, but what we can say for sure is that conservatively speaking, there's at least 300 there's at least 300 Old Testament prophecies that concern the coming of Jesus that he actually fulfilled in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And I don't think that kind of fact sometimes really gets us. That that is insane when you think about it. That this man Jesus came and fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. And you tell this to people who don't believe in Jesus and they go, well, listen, he was a Jew. He was a Jew. He knew the Old Testament. So he knew 
that these verses said that, you know what, he's going to ride into Bethlehem on a donkey. So guess what he did? He got a donkey and rode into Bethlehem, uh, into Jerusalem, sorry. And he knew other things that were prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. And so he made sure he did those things because he knew he needed to fulfill these Old Testament prophecies in order to be considered the Messiah. However, there are some prophecies that he couldn't, he couldn't have enacted himself. Like, for example, the prophecy about where he was going to be born. He couldn't make himself born in Bethlehem. He had no control over that. Or the nature of his death. He couldn't make sure that they drove nails through his hands. He couldn't make sure that they gambled and divided up his clothes. But that's what happened. There are some, certainly, that Jesus did fulfill knowingly. Like, for example, when he is in the synagogue in his hometown. And he reads from Isaiah, doesn't he? And after he reads from Isaiah, he sits down and says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so there are some prophecies that Jesus definitely willingly fulfilled and he knew what he was doing. But I think that strengthens the case for Jesus being the Messiah because he knew who he was. It wasn't accidental that he fulfilled these prophecies. Many of them, he knew what he was doing. He understood himself to be the Messiah, the son of the living God. He understood what his mission was. I want to tell you something just insane. There's a book called Science Speaks. Science Speaks. It's by two guys, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman. And what they do in that book is, is they work out the probability, the mathematical probability of any one person fulfilling just eight of these Old Testament prophecies. What's the probability that just any old Tom, Dick or Harry could come along and fulfill eight of these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah? What they found out, this blew my mind, what they found out was that the chances of that happening, of one person coming along and fulfilling not 300, not 574, but just eight of these Old Testament prophecies was something in the order of one in 100 million billion Big numbers. Those are big numbers here. And to help understand how remote the chances are of this happening, just at random, the apologist Lee Strobel, who was a... If anybody read Lee Strobel before? Come across The Case for Christ. If you haven't read The Case for Christ, you've got to get that book. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And basically, he went about trying to disprove... Um, Christianity and in all of his studies he actually came around became a Christian because he found the evidence was too strong for him to deny incredible testimony but Lee Strobel in his book the case for Christ he helps us to understand these chances because for me I'm not good at numbers so 100 in million whatever I don't really understand it but Lee Strobel says this the chances of just any one person fulfilling eight messianic prophecies are something like this He says, imagine if you were to tile the whole earth, if you tiled the whole earth with little tiles, one and a half inch by one and a half inch, so tiny little mosaic tiles, if you tiled the whole earth with them, and under one of those tiles you hit a penny, okay, and then you instruct someone, you say, right, go out into all the world and find that penny, 
the chances of just one person fulfilling eight messianic prophecies is the same chance as that person going out into the world and the very first tile they pick up has the penny under it. That's how remote those chances are. Strobel went further. He said, all right, well, what about the chances of somebody fulfilling 44 of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament? What are the chances of that? He worked out the chances of that was something like one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. Impossible, essentially. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that miraculous? Jesus is wonderful. There's no other word for it. He is a miracle. That he didn't just fulfill eight of those prophecies. He didn't just fulfill 44 of these Old Testament prophecies. He fulfilled over 300. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the child who was born. He is the Son who was given. He is the Son of God. His birth is miraculous. His ministry was miraculous. It, I think it was... I can't remember the guy's name. He, he started the vineyard movement. John Wimber. He worked out that there was around 30%, more than that, I think, over 30% of Jesus' ministry was miraculous, like miracles, healings, signs, and wonders. And if you look through the church and the church's history, it's jam-packed full of the same stuff, miracles, signs, and wonders. Because it's the church of Christ. Jesus' ministry and life was miraculous. And therefore his church is miraculous. There's another great book by Craig Keener called Miracles. I'd recommend you get it. And that's a collection of bona fide, doctor verified miracles that have happened just through prayer. Insanely good. His ministry was miraculous. Jesus' death was miraculous. We, we often skip over this and we, we, we miss some of the details that are in the Gospels about Jesus' death, but the sky was black for three hours in the middle of the day when he hung on the cross. People say dumb stuff like, oh, it's just a solar eclipse. No, it was pitch black everywhere. <laughs> this was a miracle, you know, for three hours. That's not what happens in a solar eclipse. I don't know if you realize that. We're talking about a miracle. So much of it was miraculous. When you think as well, when he died and the curtain was rent in two in the temple, you know, rocks broke open. They even say that, that dead saints came out of their tombs. That's in your Bible. I don't know how to explain that rationally. It's a miracle. Jesus' death was miraculous. His resurrection, the greatest miracle of all time, a man rose from the dead. It's what you believe in. You realize you're a Christian, you're saying that miracles happen, that miracles happen, that wonderful things happen. We believe in miracles because we believe in the Word of God. We believe we have good reason to believe in miracles, but listen, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was wonderful, wonderful, miraculous. His work of salvation in itself, the fact that he could save a sinner like you, like me, is wonderful. There's no other word for it, is there? I don't know about you, but every day, I glory more and more in the fact that Jesus saved me. 
Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it miraculous? If salvation was up to you, you'd be stuffed. Let's be honest. <laughs> but thank God it isn't. Hallelujah. The second name he's given is counselor or wonderful counselor. Interestingly, in, in Isaiah, in chapter 28, it says this. This also comes from the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. You see those two go together. Good counsel is always wise counsel. You can't be a good counselor without wisdom. And then Isaiah 11:2 says, And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Counsel isn't really a word we use too much in ordinary conversation. So what is counsel? We've got a couple of counselors in the room who are probably able to answer this better than I can. But at the baseline, counsel is advice. It's advice. It's words of instruction that are given after consultation. I think that's key as well. You can't be a good counselor if you haven't got the information first. You need to consult and find out what the issue is before you can give good counsel. And wise counsel helps people to make good decisions. It helps us to make good decisions when we're faced with a problem, with a challenge, or with a dilemma. Psalm 73:24 says, You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Amen. That's from the NLT. I like that. You guide me with your counsel, Lord, leading me to a glorious destiny. Isaiah 9, 6 says that Jesus came to be our wonderful counselor. Miraculous counsel, the one who gives us the best possible advice, the one who leads us into glorious destiny. And how much do we need that? How much do we need a wise counselor every day? Because at the, at the bottom line is this, all of our worldly problems stem from Adam and Eve having taken bad counsel in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that funny? All of mankind's problems essentially issue from the fact that our forefathers, Adam and Eve, took bad counsel from Satan in the Garden of Eden. They took bad advice. They took advice from somebody who led them astray. And it's not just the voice of Satan that is ready to give you bad advice each day. There are many, many voices out there that are attempting to counsel you to give you guidance, to give you advice as to what the best course of life might be for you. Especially, I think of some of the younger people in our congregation, and young adults. There are so many voices out there wanting to tell you how to live your life. How to make the best decisions. How to steer clear of being unpopular and looking foolish and things like that. Many, many voices. Some good, some not so good. But listen, there's only one counsellor that never fails. There's only one counsellor that is actually able to lead you to that glorious destiny. And that's Jesus. And the voice of every other counsellor needs to be measured by his counsel. It's only by having that anchor of God's word that we're able to tell whether somebody's advice is good or bad. And, and we need that, don't we? 
I'll tell you what, sometimes it's hard to know. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it hard to know what good counsel is and what bad counsel is. Because sometimes bad counsel feels good, doesn't it? Because sometimes it touches on issues in my heart. Like each of us, even though we're born again, even though we're saints, each of us wrestles still with sin, don't we? Each of us has a, a body that still has appetites. And sometimes I might be opening up the cupboard and looking in there, looking in there at all the biscuits and all the unhealthy things that I, I want to eat, but I know I shouldn't eat, right? <laughs> and sometimes all I'm looking for is for Becca to walk in and go, oh, if you get in a biscuit, can I have one too? Because then that enables me to get what my sinful heart really wants, right? Do you see the picture here? Do you see the picture? Sometimes, sometimes people are looking at something that they know is sinful and they're just waiting for somebody to come and give them the counsel that says they can have that thing. Because ultimately it's what their heart wants anyway, even though they know it's wrong. But if a counselor comes along, a friend, could be a friend, could be a relative, could be a social media influencer that says, you go get that thing. You go, I will. <laughs> I will and I'm going to enjoy it now and I feel justified in it. Because listen, there are lots of voices out there wanting to counsel you as to how to live your life. But there's only one counselor whose counsel's perfect. There's only one counselor who's able to give you the right advice every time and that's Jesus. So how does he counsel you? How do you get an appointment with Dr. Jesus? How do you sit down and receive his counsel? It's pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. It's his word. It's him. You see, we can't, we can't slice up Jesus and say, well, look, here's Jesus and here's the Bible. All right? I want to receive counsel from Jesus, but I don't really want to listen to the Bible. No. The Bible's written by Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's his word. That's his counsel. David says, you read Psalm 119? Longest psalm in the Bible. Probably take you a few days. But <laughs> in that, David says time and time again, he says, Lord, your testimonies have become my counselors. He allowed the stories about God delivering the Israelites to become counselors to him. And so when we allow the Bible to speak to us and speak into our situation, we're letting Christ counsel us. Equally, another great thing to do is remind yourself of times when God has brought deliverance for you. We've each got testimonies, haven't we? Each of us has a story. Each of us has a, a story of how God has worked in our lives. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of those stories, don't we? And let those stories counsel us when we're in dark places. The second name that this child is called is Mighty God. Or in Hebrew, El Gibor. El Gibor. Has anybody recognized that? We've just done a whole series on the names of God. And El is a word that means God. And in fact, El is a word that means Mighty God itself. So it's like saying Mighty God, Mighty. It's a double up. And this is a divine name. You can't be called El Gabor if you're a human. You can't. It'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It'd be like introducing, all right, class, here's Graham, it's his first day, but don't call him Graham, call him Mighty God. It's ridiculous. You don't call a human by God's name. 
So this means this child, this son that's given to us, Christ, isn't a mere man. He's not a created being like the Jehovah's Witnesses say because he takes on a divine name. He can't be an angel. No angel could be called El Gabor. It means mighty God. In fact, there's a picture here for us as well. You know in Revelation 19, man, it gets the hairs on the back of my neck going, but in Revelation 19, there's the rider on the white horse, isn't there? With the name that can't be read. And he rides out and he judges all of those who followed the Antichrist. It's pretty gruesome. But that's El Gabor, that's mighty God, riding out at the end of time to judge. This is who Jesus is. He's not just meek and mild, born in a manger. But he is El Gabor, he's mighty God. This is a paradox that we have to understand as Christians. That yes, his first coming was in humility and meekness and mildness. And he's wonderful and kind and he's beautiful. He's opened the door of grace to all mankind. And we've got to come now. Because when he comes back on that white horse, it's going to be too late. Because he's also El Gabor, the warrior God. I just love that though. <laughs> that here's mighty God. This is what we're celebrating in Advent. Here's El Gabor. Lying in a manger. I'd, I'd encourage you, if you're in the WhatsApp group, read the article that Derek shared this morning talking about, you know, how Jesus, where Jesus was born. Manger. It could be a little booth at the front of a house. That's right, isn't it? It's like a little hollowed out trough that you'd put hay in for animals to eat out of. So it wasn't really a stable. It's more of a, a, a hay, sort of a hay deposit where animals can eat out of. But mighty God was born and placed in there. Not surrounded by great politicians and people of importance and influence, but by shepherds, by ordinary people, in other words. By people like you and me, just mighty God there, lying in a manger. Incredible. And what's really cool, I want to finish on this really, is what's really cool is that these names, these four or five names that speak of Jesus... Ultimately, they don't really just speak about his nature, but they speak about who he is to you. They're really names that speak about who he is to you and, and me. These names are saying that Jesus is a wonderful counselor to us. It's saying that he's mighty God for us. It's saying he's everlasting father for us, that he is our prince of peace. It's saying that Jesus isn't just mighty in and of himself. He's not just mighty God in and of himself, but he's mighty God for you. He's mighty God to save you. Mighty God to deliver you out of trouble. Mighty God to crush all of his enemies. I love Psalm 2. Anybody love Psalm 2? He's going to put every enemy under his feet. He's doing it now. He's conquering. He's conquering. He's going to conquer your enemies. He's mighty God to and for you. He's going to put every enemy under his feet. You can't do it, but he can on your behalf. Amen. He's also everlasting father. Everlasting father. Now that can be a bit confusing. How can Jesus, who is the son, not the father, be called everlasting father? Doesn't that seem to go directly against what we see in Jesus' life where he prays to the Father? If he is the Father, why is he praying to, is he praying to himself? What's going on here? 
Because we know that the Son is God. Amen? Can you say amen with me? The Son is God. The Father is God. But the Father is not the Son, right? Is that right? Or are you all modalists in here? And the Son is not the Father. Okay? The persons are distinct. God the Father didn't become God the Son. Does this make sense to you? The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross, but both share the same divine essence. So how is it that this Messiah is being called Everlasting Father if he is the Son and not the Father? Is this confusing? I'm confused anyway. Well, there are several interpretations, several different understandings of what this could mean. But there's one that I think fits perhaps the best. And it's this. We understand from scriptures that even though your direct father is not Adam, we still call Adam our father, don't we? Adam is put forward by scripture as being the father of all, of all humanity. We all have our descent naturally from him. And we receive what from Adam? Because there's an inheritance from Adam, isn't there, in the Bible? If you read Romans 5, what does it say about our inheritance from Adam? Is it good? It's not so good, is it? It's not so good. Our father Adam left us inheritance, but it wasn't really a blessing. He left us all in a state of sin. And he left us all under the curse of death because of sin so a father gives us what it gives us inheritance right it gives us inheritance so all all who are born in this world have a father in adam that's the first adam however the second adam is who jesus jesus is the second adam And in a sense, Jesus becomes a father, just like Adam was a father, to all who believe. Jesus becomes a father to all who believe in him. And all who believe in Jesus also, guess what, receive an inheritance from him, just like a son would from a father. What do we receive and inherit from Jesus? We receive his righteousness, don't we? And we receive eternal life, John 3.16. So Christ is a father over the church, in a sense. He is the second Adam. And every Christian receives an inheritance from him that can never be taken away because he's everlasting. In fact, the, the Greek version of this same passage is ever so slightly different from the Hebrew. It's really interesting. And it says that he shall be called father over the eschaton, which means the age, the future age. And so there's this sense that Christ is going to reign over all time. He is going to rule over time. He shall be a father over all time, as well as all of the church. So this name speaks to us of Christ's inheritance for us as his children. His righteousness, his goodness, his grace. And it speaks to us of his being everlasting. He's never going to pass away. There's never going to be a time when you're not going to be able to have all of those things that Christ gives you. He's, no, he's not going anywhere. 
It doesn't change. And the final name here is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, or Sar Shalom in Hebrew. This word peace, I'm sure you've heard this many times before, but when we think peace in the West, we think of a cessation of war, war ending. That's what the peace movement was, wasn't it? It's all about ending war. But there's a bit more to the word peace in Hebrew than just an end to war. It actually means not just peace, but wholeness. And not just wholeness, but actually a positive state of well-being. A positive state of being in health. Of being in prosperity. That's what shalom means. And so Christ to you is your prince of peace. He's your peace dealer. He is the one who gives out wellness, well-being, whole. How many of you don't feel whole? I don't feel whole in this world. I know that sin has put a crack in my being. And so no matter how much I try and fill up on things that make me happy in this world, I can never be happy. I can never make that hole go away. I can never make that brokenness go away by trying to just fill my heart with stuff that I crave. If I'm depressed, it doesn't matter how many pills I take, I can never make that thing go away. But Christ comes to give us that thing that escapes us this side of eternity, which is wholeness. Ultimate health and well-being. Like we sang earlier, no more tears. No more pain. No more brokenness. Perfection. Shalom. Brothers and sisters, if we have Christ, it doesn't matter what we lack. If we have him, it doesn't matter what we don't have. He's everything. This is how those early Christians were able to go through all that they went through. But still not recant Jesus. Still not say, I recant. I give up Christ. It didn't matter whether they were thrown to the lions. Or whether they were stood in the middle of a great arena and had boiling lead poured over them. They would not recant Jesus. They would not give up on him. Because they knew if they held fast to him, it didn't matter what they lost. He was their everything. And I want to ask you today, is he wonderful to you? Is he a counsellor to you? Before any other worldly influence, before what your friends and family think of you, before what your colleagues reckon about your faith, are you counselled by Jesus? Is he your mighty God? Do you not just honour him, but do you worship him as God? Is he your everlasting father? Have you received righteousness? His right. You're not standing thinking you're a good person anymore, but you're standing in his perfect righteousness. Is he your prince of peace? Because if he isn't, it's really sad, but you won't find any peace in this world. All you'll find is false peace. Never be satisfied. If Christ is your peace, it doesn't matter what happens to you. That peace will never leave. I read a story this week about Corrie ten Boom. You heard of Corrie ten Boom? 
She and her sister were imprisoned at Ravensbrück concentration camp during the Second World War. And they were put in some of the most horrid barracks. These were places where disease ran wild, where people were dying all around them. An awful place to be. But Connie Ten Boom and her sister started a Bible study in this barracks in the middle of a concentration camp, surrounded by all this death and horrendous things happening. They started a Bible study for other prisoners in their barrack. And what happened was they had not just lice, not just sickness, not just cholera, but then they had an infestation of fleas in the barracks. And Corrie Ten Boom said to her sister, she said, I can't take it anymore. This is the last straw. Lord, we've persevered through sickness. We've persevered through the lights. We've persevered through the beatings. We've persevered through all of this. But just not the fleas, Lord. I can't, I can't put up with this anymore. And her sister turned around to her and, and said, no, we have to give thanks even for the fleas. We have to even say, thank you, Lord, for these fleas. And Corrie Ten Boom's just like, I can't do it. I can't do it. But in the end, knelt with her sister in solidarity and prayed and said, Lord, whatever else happens, we thank you for all this. Because even though all this is happening, we're still able to do our Bible study, Lord. And they began to do their job and teach the Bible to these women in their, in their lodging. A few weeks later, they realized that guards had not been coming in as they had been before. The guards had not been coming into their barracks to break up the Bible study. Do you know why? They didn't want to catch the fleas. Isn't it wonderful, though, how amidst all of that horror, these two sisters carried a light of hope and peace in a place where there shouldn't have been those things, in a hostile environment. It's because they had Christ. It's because they had him as their Prince of Peace and not their circumstances. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite... Eddie, come back up and, and lead us in a final song. I want to just encourage you, like, each of us goes through uh, challenging seasons in life. And even though Jesus may well be all of those things to you, it doesn't mean that from time to time you don't experience the shaking and you don't experience challenges. And so let's just take a moment to bring those things before him now. Maybe to repent and say, sorry, Lord. You know, maybe we need to do that. Uh, maybe we just need to bring some of those challenges to him and say, Lord, perhaps I'm not feeling peace in this area right now because I'm looking in the wrong places. Right. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for sending Christ into the world. We thank you that this child was born, this son was given, not just to the Jews, but also to us, your people, Lord God. And Lord, right now we pray, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us this week to look to Jesus for all that we need, to look to him as our Prince of Peace, to look to him as our everlasting Father, to receive all that is his for us to be counseled by his word. Maybe we've been being counseled and being advised by worldly voices and we need to get back to his word. Lord, we pray right now, this week, that you might lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.